Welcome to Deconstructing the Myth, a podcast exploring reasons why those who grew up in the American Evangelical Church are now leaving it behind. This is the second part of a two-part series with Nathaniel Schweinberg. Today, we discuss his top five Bible objections, which led to him eventually leaving Christianity entirely. Just a disclaimer, there is some adult language and topics discussed, so if you have little ones around, you might want your headphones in. Okay, Nathaniel, thank you for being back on the show, and today I'm actually really excited to do this. Um, We are going to get into your top five Bible objections. So, uh, yeah, let's just jump right in. Your first Bible objection is what you saw as injustice in the Old Testament on God's part, especially concerning God telling Israel to treat surrounding nations and people within its own community that were vulnerable in ways that were unjust uh, or yep. maybe even unethical uh, as you saw it. So could you could you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so, so I definitely alluded to like two of my big ones. One, that God felt it necessary to murder everybody on earth, at least once, <laughs> uh, in the flood. Um, again, like, so he's, so God's justification on this was that, you know, everyone was, was so sinful that he had to cleanse everybody and, and start over. Let's set aside the fact that this is a common myth for all of the peoples in that area of the world at that time. And this is a part of Israel's mythology. It is still used to explain who God is. Hmm. So to me, like either they believe this is a part of who God is, or we demote this to, you know, just a poem or just a like, you know, if, if this is just an adaptation of local mythology, then don't include it in the canon of scripture. Mm-hmm. Because to me, the canon of scripture, like the requirements for that is these are the texts that A, prove that God is real and B, instruct us on how we're supposed to live. Because if we don't, we're going to hell. That is an incredibly high bar. That is an incredibly high bar of requirements for what goes into a thing. Call it apocryphal. I have no problem with that, but don't say this is a part of what defines hmm. God, heaven, hell, all these things. Um, you know, I, I think Christianity would, and probably, well, maybe, actually, I'll just speak to Christianity. I think Christianity would be a hell of a lot better off if it had more apocryphal books. Or not, not so much as, like, more existed, but, like, they allowed for and accepted that these books exist but then again that would probably like you know well sorry i'm like meandering because i'm actually developing this thought as i think about it um because well and let's just define so apocryphal mm -hmm. books are books that are not accepted by all like there's the apocrypha which is a collection of specific texts and then there's apocryphal which would be uh the gospel of thomas uh gospel of enoch uh, and, and there's a bunch of other quote-unquote apocryphal books that aren't that aren't accepted in any any form of canon. Mm-hmm. And I have heard that you know uh, apocryphal books are regarded by a lot of people as helpful um, and as mm-hmm. containing yeah. true things about God. Like many Christians will say that, but they say they don't hold the same authority as you know the canon. Right. So maybe is that what you're saying? Like if we had a little more yeah. of this leeway of this can tell us some useful information about God, some true things about reality. And yet there's a freedom in not having to claim that those books have ultimate authority over our lives. So is that what you're saying? Are are you saying that if we had more of a view on texts in that way, that perhaps Christianity would be better off? I, I hope I'm not signaling us to another question, but it, it might it might take <laughs> us there. Like this whole idea of inerrancy is is kind of a, a fulcrum point for me, um, and I feel okay. that if once you lean too far one direction, it just kind of goes ultimately to where I am now. But I think, like, for, so for me now, the way that I hold scripture is that it is a series of historical texts and poems and pieces of, of art, effectively. Um, okay. It holds no authority. It is a collection of text, texts by a bunch of people recording their thoughts and feelings, which is great. That's actually a really good way for us to understand uh, ancient peoples and help us understand ourselves now because 
there there were people too they were exploring what it meant to be a human being and what it meant to interact with other people like there are still really good things that are recorded there but i'm sure as fuck not gonna gonna hang my eternal condition on what is contained in that text and i think christians would do better to i think i think this is where progressive christians have ultimately landed and i actually had like a, a, a bit of a back and forth with a priest on tiktok about this like holding like some christians believe and can can hold the bible in a position of authority while not regarding it as inerrant or recognizing that there are errors and that it, it isn't a perfect text however you mm-hmm. decide to define perfect um that instead viewing it as a kind of like standing on the shoulders of giants being able to take all of the learnings of all of the people over you know however many millennia to understand their existence and have it be condensed down into texts that we now can consume over the course of a year. You know, if you're really going hard to paint reading the Bible, um, <laughs> you know, that you're, you're able to build off of all these other people's work, trying to understand what it means to be human. And within that context, I have slightly, slightly more respect for actually not even, not, not really only, only a sliver of the Bible do I have any respect for, but, but now like modern books, I mean, I would call, I would call books that, that writers are coming out with now apocryphal because it is mm. the same thing. It is people recording what they understand to be their experience with God. And in addition to communicating in a way to help other people understand as well, where that wasn't necessarily the explicit intent of these passages. Right. Mm-hmm. Do I believe the Bible needs to be inerrant to hold any authority? Probably not. But again, I'm not going to hang my eternal hat on it because of all, all of the problems that we can get into over the course of this of this talk yeah so inerrancy ultimately isn't your main problem with the bible is that what because i think that's kind of what i thought i was like oh well nathaniel is that's i think what i had pegged as like okay so inerrancy must be a big Mm -hmm. deal to him because you know it it seemed to me that the points we're going to be discussing trend towards there must be errors (laughs) in the bible but perhaps what i'm hearing is actually you're saying no inerrant or not these are issues with like the nature of god would that be correct to say that yeah that'd be correct and i'd say for my own personal journey inerrancy and getting over that was the first domino in a chain of dominoes that would fall yeah okay and so for a while you believed the bible did have errors and you were still considering yourself a christian correct yep yep okay that's good to know because I viewed it more of a, of a historical text than any sort of authority. Okay, so this is a good foundation for us to lay as we really start tackling some of these questions. Because now we know sort of where you were coming from and how you were how you were interacting with the Bible when you were asking these big questions. Um, let's get back to our original question about injustice in the Old Testament. And I know that you have mentioned the flood. Um, you mentioned God's... Um, ordaining the killing of the firstborn Egyptians. And you also mentioned how Israel was to interact within within its own community. Can you give us a little more about what that was like? Right. So uh, I forget the I forget the name of the specific theology, so please help me if you can remember it offhand. But okay. the idea that God was assigning instruction for to, to improve culture over time instead yes. of making it good at the very beginning. Yeah, that's the um, redemptive movement hermeneutic. So the idea that over the over like the lifetime of, of the authorship of Scripture, that God and the people that, that worshipped him would be slowly and incrementally improving the, the lives of those within those communities. So the very beginning, literally in the beginning, women are made, or it is perceived that women are, are second-class citizens to men. Um, and like people would argue, well, no, no, no. That said that they're, they're, you know, that they're both equal or that, that, that God made them. They were both good, et cetera, whatever. But that's not reflected in, uh, law. So I know there was a passage in numbers that, um, you thought really kind of encapsulated this. And ironically, Mm -hmm. you had said also it, it looks like God is causing abortion, which is extremely against, you know, everything, Christians in America, conservative Christians say um, that God would yep. want anyway. But the the passage is Numbers five eleven through thirty one, and it's when a husband suspects his wife has been unfaithful. Um, 
The context behind this is basically the husband suspects a wife of cheating but has no evidence. So he brings her before a priest and there is a ritual done to show her innocence or show her guilt. And starting in verse 16, um, we kind of read the specifics of that. It says, the, and I'm reading from the NIV, the priest shall bring her and have her stand before the Lord. Then he shall take some holy water in a clay jar and put some dust from the tabernacle floor into the water. After the priest has had the woman stand before the Lord, he shall loosen her hair and place in her hands the reminder offering, the grain offering for jealousy, while he himself holds the bitter water that brings a curse. Then the priest shall put the woman under oath and say to her, if no other man has had sexual relations with you and you have not gone astray and become impure while married to your husband, may this bitter water that brings a curse not harm you. But if you have gone astray while married to your husband and you have made yourself impure by having sexual relations with a man other than your husband, here the priest is to put the woman under this curse. May the Lord cause you to become a curse among your people. And when he makes your womb miscarry and your abdomen swell. So that is in the NIV, and you were going to read from another version for us. So this one is from the NRSV and is very similar, uh, starting in verse 20. But if you've gone astray while you're under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband has had intercourse with you, the priest to make the woman take the oath of the curse and say to the woman, the Lord make you an execration and an oath among your people. When the Lord makes your uterus drop, your womb discharge. Now may this water that brings the curse into your bowels and make your womb discharge and your uterus drop. And the woman shall say, Amen, Amen. So I think this could be pretty appalling for Christians the first time reading this. Especially since a lot of times we don't spend, as evangelical Christians, we don't spend a ton of time in the Old Testament. But I'm sure it's appalling <laughs> that these are in some of, you know, our Bibles. I do have a few thoughts on it. And then I'm going to have, Nathaniel, I'm going to have you respond. Um, the concoction in this passage is made out of dust and water. Um, and if the curse is based on the effects of this mixture alone, it would actually be in the woman's favor, arguably, because it wouldn't actually cause the curse without divine intervention. And I think this is interesting because people will compare this passage to the Salem witch trials. But in that case, it would take divine intervention for you to actually live. Whereas in this situation, it would take divine intervention um, for you to get the curse unless there's something we're missing unless it's more than just you know dust and water um the passage says nothing explicitly about if the woman's pregnant and if it affects a fetus and i think this actually makes me so angry about bible translations if it is true but when i looked up the original hebrew the curse really the word was belly meaning it could be mm -hmm. abdomen body it could mean womb but the most common word for what would swell was belly and then thigh rotting and thigh could also mean loin side or base so it isn't super duper clear what is going on honestly when i first read this i read it in a different translation and i was like this sounds an awful lot like our stomach bug we've had like three times this year which <laughs> left us on the toilet quite uncomfortable um i won't get into details but it wasn't my from my other version, which I think did did say, you know, the belly and, and the thigh, I thought I didn't necessarily think um, miscarriage, especially since it, it doesn't mention a woman being pregnant at all. Um, mm. But yeah, what are your thoughts on this? So it's interesting. Um, and it's an interesting point that you mentioned that it would re require divine intervention to occur. Mm -hmm. um, and I could see a couple different things happening here. So one, there could have been a very clever rabbi who needed a way to um, calm specific members of the community and devised this as a, as a uh, way to placate an angry husband mm. and inadvertently protect the wife, right? So if, if the rabbi doesn't believe actually that this is going to happen, he knows this is literally just dust and water. She may have, you know, an upset tummy, but this is not going to harm the baby. Mm. Um, then here, yes, take this curse, whatever, yada, yada, drink it. If something bad happens, then, you know, oh, well, um, or not, not, oh, well, if something bad happens, then, oh, it must have been, you know, because she was unfaithful. Well, the problem with that, though, is the downstream effect. If, she, if it proves that she was unfaithful, uh, if I'm not mistaken, she would then be stoned. Hmm. So that's a problem. Um, and if other passages in the Old, Old Testament t tell us anything, God isn't against divine intervention when it comes to killing people. So, I, I mean, 
this whole idea that God actually gives a shit about kids is preposterous to me because one, he sent his, the angel of death to murder every single firstborn in Egypt. Mm. God murdered every single child born and unborn in the flood. God instructed Israel to kill every fucking child in Canaan. Like God does not give a shit about your kids. He does not give a shit whether they're in the womb or not. So this whole idea that God cares about the unborn is fucking preposterous to me. So this numbers passage is really like a small snippet of what we see a lot in in the Old Testament and in the commands. Um, and I wanted to bring up, we mentioned this a little bit before, but the redemptive movement hermeneutic, because I think for me, this is a compelling Christian argument, and I want to get your thoughts on it. William J. Webb wrote on this, and it's this idea that, yes, we see commands that seem unjust and don't seem ideal because for all of history, they, they actually aren't ideal, but God chooses commands for the people that best serve them in their place, in their culture, in their time in history. And they set the trajectory towards a truly just and ideal society. So for instance, God tells Israel to free slaves after a set number of years, um, while the surrounding nations did not have a practice like that. So it's saying a different trajectory than than those around them. Women had some rights in the Old Testament, and although there are some seemingly harsh rules against them to our modern ears in the context of Israel's neighbors who could mutilate or kill women for simply neglecting their homes, the Old Testament sets a trajectory for much better treatment of women, slaves, aliens, etc. Um, this hermeneutic would argue that for God to impose a perfectly just rule at that point in history would have collapsed their entire society and economy doing more harm to all the people within it than by employing a more gradual change. But by setting commands in place that led to an ultimate ethic against unjust practices, God keeps the society intact while simultaneously working to accomplish the goal. So it it does seem to me when Jesus comes on the scene, his actions and teachings fit this proposed theory. Um, Because if it's true that he didn't come to throw out the law, but actually to fulfill it, it does seem like he radically changes it. Um, which is in a large part why religious experts wanted to kill him because they thought he was being blasphemous. But what if he was simply continuing that trajectory that he knew God intended? Um, It's worth noting he doesn't treat women like Old Testament laws would lead us to think he should, literally, if he was God. He actually breaks some of these laws to what people thought was breaking them. And so Mm -hmm. if it's the trajectory... If, if that's truly what's happening, it would be a fulfillment in a sense. It wouldn't be a breaking. It would be like the consummation. Um, and the last point I want to make is that it, it's very difficult to make something relevant and timeless. So if God's goal is to give commands that can actually be followed by real life people and actually bring them into harmony with one another and God then this hermeneutic makes sense to me because it takes account, takes into account, I guess, their culture and the fact that to have full equality, to have no slavery, to have women be at a place of equal authority with men at the time in their culture to make a sudden and immediate change for justice would have collapsed their economy, would have collapsed the internal infrastructure of their culture, benefiting no one. So by setting in motion commands that can't be followed that lead to this trajectory of equality, justice, fairness, that was the way to go because it could actually sustain the, the nation as it moved toward this kind of drastic change. And in this way, it wouldn't completely destroy them from the inside out culturally and economically. So anyways, tell me your thoughts on this. And if you've heard this before, I literally hadn't heard this before. I think this spring, Mm. but yeah. What are your thoughts? I think I've heard it in passing, but I don't know if I've ever heard it like substantively argued. Um, yeah. So, but I, I, I would have agreed with it as a Christian, I think, but I vehemently oppose it now because it inherently communicates that women and slaves actually still don't matter. Because they are exploited until fallen humanity is good enough or ready for women and slaves to be treated as as equal to men. So women and slaves aren't actually equal, 
because if they were, they should have been at the very beginning. And this highlights uh, a uh, this highlights the problem of instruction, which kind of goes back to the whole omni thing. If God is all good, knowing, powerful, present, etc., then it stands to reason to me they are capable of being the perfect at everything, which means that they would be capable of communicating perfectly. And we would therefore have some reliable method of understanding what God's ethics are and what he believes, how he believes we should live. Like we should have that from the very beginning. And yet if we look at the world, that is very much not what we have. We have thousands of Christian denominations, hundreds, if not thousands of translations of scripture, which don't even fucking get me there. Like people being like, well, it's, it's, you know, it's still from the source material, but people are still translating to suit their, whatever they want it to be. Mm -hmm. Fuck off. Um, yeah, like I have, I have zero patience for that shit. Uh, if God was, if God was perfectly good and able, he would have given us the fucking book, the fucking rules at the very fucking beginning. And that would have been that, but that's not what we see. We see cultures all over the world who have different conceptions of God. We have, we have Christians all over the world who have different variations of what they believe to be sin are things that are worthy of sending you to hell or, you know putting you out of right relationship with God if you don't believe in hell. So the evidence as I see it suggests that there is no God because, or at least there's no all, all everything God, because he would have told us at the beginning, Hey, don't kill women. Don't enslave and own other people. Like that wouldn't have had to have been a thing that we realized later on in life. of like, Oh my God, you know, because again, if, if that is the truth, then God set up humanity to exploit entire groups of people, half the fucking population for the majority of human history up until this point, so that they could finally have rights? That doesn't make sense. This whole idea that, like, you know, people couldn't handle treating women equally is is bullshit. Completely bullshit hmm. in the context of history. Hmm. Thank you for sharing your thoughts with us on all of that. Um, moving on to our second Bible objection that you raised. Um, it came from personal experience for you, but finding out that different books in the Bible had different authors potentially than you had been taught was a pivotal, a pivotal thing to your understanding of the Bible and eventually to your understanding of God. Could you just explain a little bit about what you discovered in higher education about about these books and, and why that affected you? Yeah, so a little more context on my education. Uh, I've never formally been to seminary. I minored in religion when I was in university and with a lot of focus on, obviously, the Old and New Testaments. Um, my senior seminar was uh, studying the book of Daniel. And this was mm -hmm. the first time I had ever heard in my 20 years of life at that point that that Daniel had multiple authors actually over a couple hundred years, at least over a century. So that was the kind of the first chip in the first chink in the armor, if you will, because up until that point, everyone in my faith community had been telling me this was a single author. So the first seeds of, of mistrust were being sown because uh, archaeologically we have evidence to support multiple authors mm. and maybe, maybe archaeologically is the wrong word. Like, different languages uh, were used over, over the authorship because it went, it went in between like Aramaic and uh, it went between at least two, la two languages. Um, and I think they were able to do some dating to, to show that the actual like texts that were recovered are from completely different time periods too. So hmm. um, the fact that history and physical evidence suggested things different than what was being taught to be in the church, put a chink in the armor and was one of the first, that was actually, that was like the first big doubt that I had, like first times I had to struggle, wrestle with, is the Bible true? Because mm -hmm. what I'm being told by my faith community is very different from what I'm being told by everyone else, uh, you know, mm -hmm. the scientific community, which at that time I didn't hold in very high regard. And now I hold in, in much higher regard. Um, mm. So, so that was kind of the archeological anthropological evidence for it. But thinking more about like, the spiritual consequences of that. If we don't even know who the fuck wrote these books, how on earth are you going to hang your hat over anything of eternal significance? How are you going to argue that, that for for instance, the, uh, the messianic prophecies or the supposed messianic prophecies in Isaiah, 
if you can't even fucking pinpoint to who who wrote this and when, why on earth are you going to say that this is reliable and worthy of being in canon? That mm-hmm. to me makes absolutely no sense. And sure, people in previous in previous points in time or in history weren't as rigorous as we are now. Okay, that doesn't change that doesn't change anything. All that tells me is that you're far more what's the word for like reckless you're far more reckless with your soul than i am because hmm. i sure shit i'm not going to trust these people to to like th- these these prophecies that are present in isaiah were used to justify christ as jesus as the christ and hmm. if we can't even verify or know the authorship of some of these things that's 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 putting a lot of uh benefit of the doubt if you will that these are accurate hmm. Okay, so I have a couple of thoughts on that. The first one being, when it comes to authorship, we have to be a little careful because historically, people have thought the name on the book is the author. And there, there is debate um, around whether or not that's the case for some of these books. So I would be interested in knowing more a little bit about like what you had heard specifically Um, when I looked into it myself, I didn't come across much debate over the authorship of those particular books. Doesn't mean it's not there, the debate, but, um, authorship is important, but I think there's kind of this underlying thought. If something rings true historically, archeologically, you know, all of that, then authorship, while important to verify the truth, does not undermine the truth of that text. And from what I understand, that's kind of in it's not unique to Christianity. That's a stance that's not just in the Christian field. I mean, to some degree, like any ancient text is going to run into this problem and historians and scholars still give them merit based on other factors. But authorship does matter. I mean, it, but it's maybe not a deal breaker to me anyway. Um, the second thought that I had was about the prophecies you had mentioned about like Isaiah and I have also been disturbed by this in the past thinking like, well, Isaiah applies passages that seem to be about something else, like maybe Egypt or Israel. And, and now Matthew in the Bible is, is attributing it to Christ. Like that doesn't seem responsible from a, from a hermeneutic point of view. And I asked a professor about this. And I got a really interesting response, which was that perhaps Matthew is not trying to like rework the meaning of that original text, but rather say, look, God did this in the past. And so this is like the ultimate fulfillment of God doing this, because now instead of just a passage being about Israel or Egypt, God is doing it through his son for all of humanity. Do you have any thoughts on on this sort of train of thought, this way of thinking about it? I do. Uh, and I actually realized why this disturbs me so much today. You know what that sounds eerily similar to? QAnon and conspiracy theorists. QAnon is a large reason why the, the insurrection happened at the Capitol. And mm. it's a, a group of people who are taking unrelated pieces of content and stitching them together and saying here's what it actually means mm-hmm. which another way of saying this a fuck ton of post attribution errors people are looking at these text texts and saying there must be a thread to this and ooh i found it when that at all was not the intent of the author and then they would say well you, well, you know the the bible is is in, is the inspired word of god god was speaking through these people but if we go back to the whole fucking inerrancy thing no this is people recording what they perceive to be their experiences of god so this is not authored by god there is no thread being written by god in this book so to say that these are prophecies that would ultimately be used to verify and validate jesus as the christ is bullshit because it has nothing to do with him so is what I'm hearing that these things, uh, having these things, like the potential for multiple authors, having prophecy used in this way, um, to you, does that undermine inerrancy, which in turn undermines God? Or how, how did that all fit together for you? So there's a few things to touch on there. Um, one, the multiple authorship issue doesn't necessarily conflict with inerrancy. It is entirely possible 
that multiple authors mm -hmm. wrote this document and that they would be in fact inerrant however that's defined okay. the problem for me more is a problem of authority that we're hanging okay. a lot of we're putting so much authority on these texts and saying this is a single author when in fact it's others and mm -hmm. the deception from church leadership in that that they don't even know they didn't fucking know that it's multiple people and we're just now finding that out so that that puts significant doubt on its uh validity and authority to me hmm. yeah. um then the other thing i think are we holding the bible to a different level of standard than we would for other ancient historical documents um mm -hmm. there is a great video by holy kool-aid if i remember correctly and I think it's titled something along the lines of the evidence for Jesus is worse than you think. And he, he goes into this. Um, so I will say, go watch that. Uh, yeah, but for we can now, link that in the show notes. Yeah. So while I have you here, um, to me, it's an issue of, again, eternal damnation. The, the, the rigor and the level of requirement for evidence to me for the state of my eternal soul is so goddamn fucking high. Like, of course, I'm not going to hold it to the same same historical standard. Or, or it's it's possible that the historical standard would be sufficient for for I'm trying to find the right word for authenticity. Okay. However, authority is not necessarily the same. Okay. So it's possible that these documents are authentic, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they hold any authority as to my eternal soul. All right, let's move on to our third objection, which is fast. Honestly, this one's fascinating to me, especially because of your guys' story with mm -hmm. the spiritual realm. Um, but anyway, we might get into that a little more later. But it's the idea that you discovered yeah. Satan and hell and demons were not necessarily as they had been presented to you in evangelical Christianity. Could you explain a little bit about that for us? Yes. Okay, so a bit more of my context. Like I was raised... <laughs> With Frank Peretti, which for those that know, oh, know, yes. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. I and, know. <laughs> and to this day, I, well, I, I, I'll say, I think I still respect him. I, I have a lot of love and appreciation for his work. I love that I, I ate it up and mm. the limited interaction I've had with him as a person lends me to believe he's actually a pretty quality human being. Um, hmm. Specifically, uh, I was at a conference and I got to hear him speak and he was addressing like mainly in evangelicalism's aversion to quote unquote darkness. Hmm. And he was going off on if we who have the light of God, if we have God, the most powerful being in the universe on our side, what the, <laughs> he didn't say this. What the fuck do you mean? We can't go into the darkness, but effectively to that, to that, to that effect. Um, you know, we are the light of the world. We are, we are supposed to go into the darkness. God commands us to go into the darkness so to say that, you know, to going to the darkness is bad or whatever that even means is antithetical to what God has instructed us to do. So for that alone, I have the utmost respect for him because, yeah, exactly right. Like we are the quote unquote city on a hill. Don't obscure the light. Go out with the light that God has given you. So, And is for our listeners who might not know, is I know mm -hmm. Peretti as an author. Is that yes. how you primarily know? And it's a fiction author, yeah. correct? Um, and yep. the book I read by, well, I've read two books and they're almost like, I don't know, is it possible to have Christian horror? <laughs> like, I almost feel yeah. like the ones uh -huh. I read, that's what it was because he does talk about yep. the demonic. Um, Quite so often. just a little background for those who don't know, but yeah, yeah. continue with, with telling us uh, what you discovered about these concepts in your own study. Right. So, so grew up on Frank Peretti, um, was really fascinated by, uh, demons effectively uh from this present darkness and hit from his books this present darkness and piercing the darkness mm -hmm. uh, they were just good books they were really enjoyable um which then led, led me into researching as like a or like a tween and a teenager uh exorcisms how to deal with the uh with the spirit realm things like that and ultimately whenever i was in college would interact with two people who i would who i would label as demon possessed um which is one of the things that kind of kept me in the in christianity so long is because I, I had no idea of how to um how to explain these experiences away 
Uh, now I can look back at it and be like, well, one of them may have been having a psychotic episode. That is entirely possible. Um, the other person I, I, I legitimately don't know because there were things that they knew that didn't make sense that they knew. And unfortunately, I can't remember specific details as to what that was. But in the moment, like the the imprinting of my emotions on my heart at that time told me there's no fucking way they should know this. So... Mm. And their strength and their voice. Like, the, the whole kit and caboodle, it was like a classic exorcism. So, hmm. not sure. Um, so, all that is to say, I was very interested in, in spirits, demons, etc. And, yeah. you know, if I if I find out God to be wrong or unjust or whatever, like, what what's going to happen to me? And that's, you know, the terror of pretty being pretty sure that God's not real, but not yet being sure that hell's not real uh, hmm. was pretty overwhelming. So... Interesting. did some research right yeah, yeah. like because I, I don't have I, I could fairly well say that okay maybe god maybe maybe doesn't exist but i don't know about what happens after i die yeah you want to know this is a little side note this is really interesting to me because when i was prepping my interview with dylan stewart he mm. talks about like a long time after leaving christianity still having this mm-hmm. fear yep. um based on the idea of hell and it took quite a while to get that unlodged and i just think i mean like for me that like i said that's why i came to christianity in the first place i do think it's evolved from that but Mm -hmm. it changes a lot uh, your view of what's happening so yeah just a little side note there um because he talks about that too about being able to give up the idea of god quicker than the fear of hell which is interesting I've got to I've got to give a shout out to a YouTube channel called Holy Kool Aid. Um, he has he and his team have an incredible video on YouTube. I think I think I think it's titled "Getting Over the Fear of Hell" or something to do with hmm. the fear of hell. And he kind of explains like what its origins are, where it came from, and ultimately why it should have no power over you because it's not real. Um, so I'll I'll give you that link. I'm pretty sure I give it to you, but you know for the show notes and stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's really important to deconstruct that part for those that were raised with that fear, um, because it definitely does not leave, and it did not leave for a while. I, I think I recovered over recovered from it faster than maybe a, number, a lot of people would, which I'm super grateful for because it was awful, but I did still have it. Um, but the concept of Satan, hell, and demons are incredibly new within the context of history. Like this wasn't something that came from. Um, early early jewish belief like they believe in a place called sheol which is just everyone went there it didn't matter whether you're good in life or bad in life it just went to this place of just nothingness um whereas the the belief in heaven and hell or at least hell and the concept of of satan really started to develop uh, i believe it was either in exile or post-exile uh when the jews were in babylon in the first couple hundred years bce um, another shout out religion for breakfast did a great video on this. I'll, I'll be sure to give, uh, yeah. Liz the, the link for the show notes. Um, because it was this time it was Israel's, uh, contact with another culture and specifically another belief system, Zoroastrianism, that this concept of an all, all good God and an all bad entity, which would eventually be developed as Satan came to be before, mm-hmm. like we look at the old Testament God was responsible for everything in the book of Job. The accuser, Satan, came to God and God said, yeah, go fuck him up. Uh, In the case of Saul, God was the one who sent the evil spirit to torment Saul. Mm -hmm. Like everyone was under God's authority. So, or that's what they would like you to believe. Because they also had, their pantheon is the wrong word, but the Israelites believed like Yahweh was not the only God. There were other gods as well. And, but he was just the best one. So you, you know, two terms come to mind about this, um, that are mentioned in Robert Wright's the evolution of God. And the first term is henotheism, which is this idea that God or like a group of gods exists for a particular group of people. And then the other term is monolatry, which is the worship of a single God, even though you believe other gods exist. And I certainly think we see that in the Old Testament with Israel constantly, you know, being told not to worship other gods and things like that. Although, you know, Yahweh's commands and words seem to indicate like Yahweh, God himself, didn't actually think there were rival gods, but he knew that Israel would act 
in such a way that they did hold that belief. And that's probably in large part because of the, you know, other people groups they encountered who did uh, believe in different gods and, and in multiple gods and things like that. Do you, do you think that that had a direct impact on how they formed thoughts about the spiritual world? So Israel got in contact with Zoroastrianism. This whole thought of, of an all-good God and all-bad deity came to be. Um, that would eventually morph into what Christians would identify as God and Satan. That mm-hmm. Jesus is being tempted by this this other, uh, this effectively all-bad deity. And Christians would argue that Satan is all over the place in the Old Testament. The demons are all over the place mm-hmm. in the Old Testament. But the ones that I've observed are all post-attribution errors, much like the prophecies that mm. they, they got in contact with these other cultures, specifically Greece and the concept of a daemon, D-A-E-M-O-N, which in effect are demigods. They're not necessarily like within Greek culture, they were, they weren't quite the level of like Zeus, Hera, etc. but they weren't humans either. They had some supernatural abilities, but they weren't completely all powerful kind of deal. Mm. And looking at, uh, the Septuagint, which is a, a Greek translation of the Torah, you can see the word daemon used to describe these supernatural beings. And that would eventually morph into what we understand to be demons. But that's the thing, is that they would eventually morph into that. They would be attributed to that. But that was not the original understanding. It was more of the more akin to a demigod rather than a minion of his all-evil deity, Satan. So, okay, so then you would say by the time jesus got on the scene and is operating with this understanding of like casting out demons and things that he's operating under this like jewish construction of the spirit world rather than ultimate reality is that what you would say about that i believe that's what has happened yeah yeah okay interesting so that point yeah so at that point the concept of of there being a bad deity and all of these evil beings being present, aka demons, had morphed into what it was then. But that was not the understanding for most of their history up and until okay. that point. So we're kind of talking like from Old Testament to New Testament, you see yeah. a shift. So a lot of evangelicals right now, I would say probably the majority from what I have um, seen and what research I have done on this, it, do believe in something of a literal satan hell or demons and Mm -hmm. but not all some think that these are metaphorical concepts and so here's where i am and i'd love for you to interact with sort of my position here because to me i'm open to a metaphorical understanding right of satan (laughs) i like how you say (laughs) it anyways and um Mm -hmm. and it actually hasn't caused you know i don't know i don't know for sure where i stand on it but it doesn't cause a huge um cinch in my faith and so I definitely in a second want to hear, you know, the importance of this um, from your perspective, because for me, it's like, okay, humans, we like to personify things. Mm-hmm. And so it's possible we personified some of this stuff and that God said, okay, I'll work with that. Like, I know how you are, especially in the New Testament. And especially because as you brought up, the word Satan literally means to oppose or to act as an adversary. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of situations, if you if you apply that to, to different parts of the Bible, whether or not this is a literal being or a force of some other uh, other kind, it makes sense. Like even in some of the ones where it talks about God acting as an evil, you know, as Satan, essentially. Mm-hmm. Well, he's an yeah. adversary to that person. So to me, I, was, I, I didn't see such a huge problem with it. However, um, you know, hell, of course, I think is a bigger problem. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. if if that's not metaphorical, we have a bigger problem on our hands. But um, (laughs) nevertheless, all of that aside, why was this topic so uh, important to leaving the faith to you? Because I think a Mm -hmm. lot of people Mm -hmm. would be quick to say like, oh, well, that's great, but it doesn't convince me one way or another. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. No, it was it was kind of a, honestly a bit of aftercare for me in the process of deconstruction because if I could figure out what you know what would happen to my soul, it would help determine what I would do. Um, mm, because if hell was still real, then it's entirely possible that okay, God just is a fucking asshole and 
I better worship him or do do whatever I need to to, to not go there. But if it doesn't exist, then I really have no reason to worship God because he sure shit is not going to do anything to to help me in this life. Hmm. And he doesn't give a fuck enough to stop people that would hurt me. And at least according to scripture, apparently, if you believe in Revelation being, you know, a prophecy for the end times, then he's storing up his wrath for the end time. So hmm. he's not going to lash out against me in this life. So there really is no reasoning for me to believe in in God, even if they do exist, because they're not going to do anything. There's no afterlife mm-hmm. to be concerned about, and they are uh, remarkably laissez, la, remarkably laissez faire in this life. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Well, that's interesting to me because I've I've thought often like, oh, if, if hell wasn't an issue, we'd have so many more Christians because you wouldn't have this like this big objection to God's goodness. Um, it, when we say, okay, he sends a bunch of people to hell. That's, that's why a lot of people start doubting that God's good or real or powerful or anything like that. But you have kind of the opposite perspective, right? For you, it, it kind of made leaving easier, right? I mean, it, it allowed me to, to leave a lot more comfortably. <laughs> so do you ever yeah. find yourself, you know, afraid of, of being wrong potentially and, and there being a saint and there being, you know, a hell? You know, I, I I felt probably for about the first six months, I really struggled with it. I wasn't sure, mm. um, but as time has gone on, it is it is really developed into nothing because like either research and finding out more more thought experiments about like well why, why it really is bullshit or why in the context of history it's a new idea or et cetera et cetera like it has become more and more invalid that I'm just not concerned about it anymore. Mm. Um, but I do want to respond to what I know I struggled with. And what, how I reasoned about it when I was a Christian, which was Pascal's wager. The okay. cost of following God is less than the cost of not and going to hell, if it actually exists. Mm-hmm. Like, the risk is greater to not follow God than it is to follow him. And when I was a believer, I never heard a proper response to this. But to be granted, I didn't really try too hard. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, anyway, didn't really try too hard. And the response is... You know, looking back at ancient Israel, they acknowledged that other gods did exist. And looking at the cultures developing over the, over millennia, they each had their own gods. Why am I afraid of this god? Why am I afraid of this hell? Who's to say I won't get sent to some other hell? Or who's to say there is a hell when all these other gods apparently exist? Like, there's nothing about this particular god and this particular hell that would make me afraid of it rather than I should be, uh, apparently I'm going the direction of, I should be terrified that anyone can send me to hell instead of just mm-hmm. this God. So that is interesting. I do think me and a lot of people, we ha- we kind of have this idea, like it's, it's Christianity or nothing. Right. <laughs> and it's either like God's real and it's the Christian portrayal of him or he's not real. And <laughs> there's nothing that happens when we die, you know? Um, so that's, really an interesting thing to bring up. I do think for me, I think Christianity is the most defendable of the major world religions. Um, but I do think we don't give a lot of attention to the others for sure. So moving on, the next objection is similar to what we brought up, I think in the first point. Um, but you talked about in the new Testament, Paul's instructions about women in the church, um, are not great in, in many <laughs> points of view, mm-hmm. I suppose. And, and you know, you and I both know many um, evangelical explanations about these instructions, which have to do especially with women being silent and being submissive and things mm-hmm. like that. And you said that since deconstructing, since deconstructing you have thought, no, it doesn't need to be explained. Paul's just a misogynist, I believe, were the words yeah. I used before. So could you kind of, yeah, explain your position to us a little bit on this? Yep. Uh, I think my specific words were, Paul's an asshole. <laughs> just <laughs> just to clear the record. Okay. So we kind of touched on this in, in my previous uh, polemic against the, the, the protective, oh my God, the redemptive. <laughs> the redemptive movement hermeneutic. Uh, that's a great issue with it because again, like it, it, the, it fundamentally believes that women and children and slaves and minorities and and people that are, um, that we now recognize to be equal and have rights 
were not recognized and actually no are not recognized fundamentally because if they were they would have had these rights from the very beginning and they would have been treated equally from the very beginning so again going back to the the name of the issue is the problem of instruction like Mm -hmm. if god actually gave a shit about these people then he would have made it clear from the very beginning as opposed to waiting thousands of years to say hey actually give a shit about these people they're actually equal to you you know he wouldn't have had paul write that slaves obey your masters he would have said fuck your masters you're equal to them (laughs) probably maybe not that but it would have been laid out that like hey listen you shouldn't enslave people actually as a matter of fact you can't own people because they're not ownable property yeah uh holy kool-aid again has a great video on this called christianity's fatal flaw highly recommended Hmm. okay we have made it to our last question for today and you said your last objection um not your last objection, but your last of the five that we chose was the inconsistencies in the synoptic gospels. Tell us about that. So I definitely have to uh, profess that I, I completely forget what like most of these are. Um, one of the classes I did, I did an entire class on the synoptic gospels and mm. comparing them and trying to rationalize them and all that sort of stuff. Um, but it kind of goes back to my, my problem with hanging our hats on things that, just don't stand up to the level of rigor required. Like my problem is that these texts aren't consistent in really fundamentally important ways, like Mm. not getting at the location of someone. Okay. Maybe that's not very important. Whether or not something fulfills a prophecy, that's pretty fucking important. Like Mm. specifically uh, when Jesus is going into Israel, uh, some record him on a colt, some record, record him on a donkey. Some of them say that there's like two, whatever, like, and this was specifically mentioned because it's supposedly fulfilling one of the um, the messianic prophecies. And if you don't get that fucking thing right, you better goddamn well believe that I'm not going to put a whole lot of, of uh, weight or authority on this thing. So, and that's just one, not to mention all the other ones. For instance, like in one, in one text, I believe it's Mark. Oh, and I forget the specific details, but effectively... One gospel says that they go to one place, they go, they flee to Egypt. And then in another gospel, they say, oh, no, they actually just went to like Bethlehem and chilled out for a few years. So to get fundamental details about someone's life wrong like that is kind of a big deal. And some, I know some Christians don't give a shit about that. I give a shit about that. Um, I remember one of the other justifications that people gave me when I was still a Christian and I was actively learning about the Bible was each of the authors of the gospels and really each of the authors of all the books in, in the Bible uh, are writing to specific audiences. And so therefore they would cater the story to that audience, which sitting at where I'm at now, that makes it worse. So they're actively changing details and telling stories. So f- in order to appeal to a specific audience that yeah. no, at least to today's academic standards, like it's one thing to be persuasive and to speak in a certain way as to persuade an audience. It's another to change details or get details wrong because of who you're talking to. So in the Christian academic realm, people address this topic in, in different ways. Um, one of the ways I've heard addressed is that is looking at the idea of contradiction. And, and it is claimed um, that it's actually harder to generate a true contradiction than than we first think um so for instance the the law of non-contradiction says a cannot equal a and non-a um at the same time in the same way and so when this is applied to literature it means a statement can't both be true and false at the same time and in the same respect Mm -hmm. and so arguably what you find in the gospels isn't contradictory unless you are taking it out of the context of ancient biography um, written history and documents of this time was typically an accurate summary or gist of what occurred rather than the words verbatim. So this was considered just as reliable as verbatim in the ancient world. And in fact, since reports were based on oral accounts, it was expected. Did this disqualify the Gospels from being accurate? Um, if so, we would have to say the same about most historical documents in the ancient world. Were the gospel writers biased? You mentioned this. Um, yes, they were. Um, all beings <laughs> are. And it may or may not affect the transmission of truth claims in their writing. You know, in the same sense that when someone comes to the stand, you know, in court, they're biased. But 
we still call on their witness as an important testimony either way. So we have to, we have to weigh those things um, in proportion to just because there's a bias doesn't necessarily mean something true isn't being said. Um, and we also have to test the validity of gospels in other ways. So then just this sort of thing. There are other ways that if, mm-hmm. if the gospels hold up in other ways, then it's easier to tell if there's an actual contradiction or not. Um, so two principles for dealing with gospel contradictions. Um, to keep in mind, differences don't necessarily equal errors and don't necessarily equal contradiction. Um, and also one that I find helpful for me is an account can be accurate without being as precise as we would like. So based on these principles and based on how ancient documents um, were written, we have good reason, I believe, to trust that we have the voice of Jesus preserved without always having the actual words based on historical textual criticism. This is something that is brought up in a book by Jonathan Moreau called Questioning the Bible that we can link in the show notes. But he argues that because we have so many sources of what Jesus said, even if it's not exactly the same parable every time, he probably told the parable multiple times. So the authors, you know, wrote the gist of the parable and we are getting the voice even though the wording may have been different. And then when we're looking at major categories um, of what are often considered contradictions, um, they, they often fall under one of these categories, right? Paraphrasing, summarizing, different interpretations. Abbreviations and omissions um, are some differences. And I guess I shouldn't say contradictions. The differences between the Gospels often fall into these categories and are sometimes called contradictions because there are abbreviations, omissions, paraphrasing, um, reporting of similar events, and sayings like in the differences between the parable of the talents um, since Jesus likely reused the story and we impose our modern understanding when we think, oh, see, this one said that he said this when he actually said this. Um, And variations in numbers. I think it's fascinating that the ancient world as a whole used numbers differently than we do in some senses because numbers represent different things. The Gospels, I think, don't completely fall into that because... You know, they are closer to us in history than, say, like the Old Testament. But when you think about, like, how many different angels were at the tomb, if one account talks about one angel and one talks about more, it's not necessarily a contradiction because, you know, the account's not saying there was only one angel. It just mentions one. So these are often some arguments Christians um, will use when dealing with contradictions. So what are your thoughts on those? So it's interesting to me, right? We have the books that we ascribe to be the words of Jesus. The texts ascribed to Paul are the earliest texts that we have. And then Mm -hmm. the Gospels were written after that time period. Mm -hmm. Call me suspicious, but I don't have a whole lot of trust in church authority. And I don't have a whole lot of trust in people who are doing things to gain uh, a following. Hmm. Isn't it interesting that the words of Jesus treat women differently than the words of Paul. Hmm. And I'm kind of going, I'm kind of going down a little bit of a conspiracy theory ish vibe and I'm not at all (laughs) wanting to go there, but these, that's, that's something I've been pondering on lately. Like the gospels, the testimonies of Christ are written so far after the fact and okay. Yeah, fine. Whatever. They didn't have the same level of, of rigor, but you know, the the phrase of, we have so many sources of what Jesus said. Mm -hmm. That's suspect. And again, again, it comes back to, to this this isn't like, we're not testing the fact that, that this existed or that this happened to to me. We are testing. Mm -hmm. Is this, is there sufficient evidence to support the condition of my eternal soul. Hmm. Like that's that to me, that's a different level of rigor than saying, did Caesar exist? That's a different hmm. le- level of rigor of, of ascribing words to us of a certain person. Like we are using these texts to determine whether I am going to rot and burn in hell for all of eternity and whether or not everyone else is going to, too. So like, this isn't just a, Oops, I got a few numbers wrong. You know, this hmm. is 
fundamental logic building and they really need to get this right and there's enough there's there's not enough consistency to suggest to me that that they that they did oh actually one other point to that um mentioned about history and numbers i i legitimately know nothing about this so this is just me like putting stuff out into the ether (laughs) it's kind of weird because egyptians were as far as i know incredibly accurate with their record keeping same with the babylonian or not not the babylonians the ancient mesopotamians and if i'm not mistaken greeks and romans so it's funny that people are like oh well you know they were just like wishy-washy with numbers it's like well they sure as shit weren't when it came to money (laughs) that is a fair point yeah i don't know about the others i just know about you know the hebrews and how the bible was written but (laughs) it's true there's certain things us humans don't like to get symbolic about our numbers on So one final thought for me that I want to hear from you in regard to this in the synoptic gospels, you know, there are these different details, these different, uh, numbers at times, these things that, um, you say are problematic to belief. And I think where I have landed lately is, is almost a working backward of the gospels instead of looking at these details and saying, okay, they can't be true. Um, I've thought if the resurrection can be proven or if the resurrection is likely to have happened, then these things that could be a contradiction, could not be a contradiction, I'm willing to give them a benefit of the doubt because of that. And I'm actually going to, in my episode, talk a little bit about, you know, the findings that I found about the resurrection, especially through one of my classes um, during my theology degree, that I found pretty convincing, um... And have led, have left me, you know, giving Christianity the benefit of the doubt for sure. And so, um, I guess I have a question for you and it's hard for me to formulate it exactly, but I'm just wondering, you know, for you kind of coming at this from a different angle than me, if the resurrection could be like proven, would that, would that change, would that change how you look at these potential objections, these potential problems with the Bible at all? Or would they remain problematic for you in the same kind of way? Does that question make any sense? If there was sufficient evidence for the resurrection, how would that influence my my perspective on all all these other things? Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Thanks for saying my question (laughs) better than I would. (laughs) You're good, you're good. That's (laughs) right. Well, it's, it's a, I mean, it is a good question. And I think, I think, I think it's kind of a common question that people ask like, well, you know, could, could, is there anything that would convince you that God exists? Right. And I'm hmm. like, yes, there is. Okay. Yeah. Answer that Pl- question. Plenty of things. I wish I would have asked yeah, that. Pl- <laughs> <laughs> yes. I think Stephanie would have been an interesting person to ask that as well. Mm. Um, and I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna use her for this because her okay. experience is unfortunately very poignant for this, um, and very similar to my own experience. Uh, so I grew up in a very abusive family. My mom uh, mm. had a particular disorder. I'll leave that out for the sake of not othering people, um, but it meant that she was uh, incredibly verbally abusive and would harm those around her. So uh, I would beg and plead with God to make her better, to change her situation, to do these all, sort, all these sorts of things. And nothing at all mm. would change. It would have been so great for God to have said something. Mm. And I think that's, a, that's a, such a common refrain for people, especially people that have left. It's like, I was just, if he just talked to me. And yeah. it's especially incongruent with what I believe to be about God, which, you know, I, I viewed him as a good father. Um, but that just makes, I don't even have kids, but I have people that I love dearly. There's no fucking way I wouldn't be talking to the people that I love. And that, that, Mm. how would he create us like this and deprive us of that connection? Mm. Especially if, you know, he desires that connection with us. Apparently that it doesn't make any sense. Mm. So that's one of those other things. That's one of those other pieces of evidence of, well, you know, if God really gave a shit, he would talk to us. He would at least talk to us directly and not through some someone saying i heard from god you know because how many how many people over history have said that 
Thank you, Nathaniel, for sharing your story and your thoughts with us and um, talking about these Bible objections with us. Are there any last words you would have for those who are starting on deconstruction for themselves? Yeah, for, for anyone that's listening to this that is still a believer and wrestling with all these things, I would highly recommend Peden's book, um, mm. How the Bible Actually Works, um, because it brought a tremendous amount of comfort to me as a believer. Mm. Um, take this for what you will. It also helped lead me to where I'm at now, which is not a believer, but at least for, for where, you're at, where you're at now, it might, it might bring a great deal of comfort. Um, mm. I also cannot recommend enough the YouTube channels Religion for Breakfast and Holy Kool-Aid. Uh, they have done phenomenal work explaining why religion is the way it is and why certain theologies have developed over time and why they may or may not be valid or reasonable anymore. Mm-hmm. Yes, and we will link all of those. And just for those listening, um, Pete Entz, I believe, would still identify as a Christian. Uh, actually, mm-hmm. I, I, yeah, I definitely would. Um, definitely not evangelical in a lot of his Mm-mm. his thoughts, but definitely a Christian. Um Holy Kool-Aid, definitely an atheist, correct? Perspective. Yep. Former believer. And then, and then like... Yeah. Former believer. Okay. And then Religion for Breakfast, it's funny because we, d- we talked about this. We're not sure what, what he believes, which <laughs> yeah. means, you know, that's... Uh, he gives a very, what I feel like to be an objective presentation. Mm-hmm. And not just of yep. Christianity, of a lot of religions. So anyway, if that, if that directs anyone to which one of those they check out, um, that's sort of their perspectives. Um, but Nathaniel, thank you so much. I, like I said at the beginning, I just really appreciate the thoughtfulness and the thoroughness um, that you put into these thoughts. And they're heavy, you know, they're heavy topics, but they're things other people are questioning and don't have people to talk to about yeah. or haven't received, you know, the kind of discussion that I think we've had today. And so I just hope it's helpful. And I think, um, I think that, you know, it's definitely given me a lot to think about and probably overall one of the things that I find most wonderful about this whole podcast is to be able to have a space where we can truly share and like mull through what's true together and and, and on the search for truth. So I just appreciate you taking the time to do that and being willing to, um, to interact with me on it. Well, it was a pleasure. I was so glad to be here, Liz. Thank you. For a list of the resources that are mentioned or recommended in today's show, please check out our podcast show notes. If this episode was meaningful to you, please consider supporting the show at patreon.com slash deconstructing the myth so that episodes like today's keep coming.